I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Today, I would like to discuss the various philosophical and cultural issues that have influenced where we are in our present 21st century civilization. But first, I want to let you know about some brand new worship workshops that are coming up with G3 Ministries. God has revealed throughout his word a great desire to be worshipped and a high regard for how he is to be worshipped. But if you walk into a random selection of churches on a Sunday morning, there's no telling what their worship will be like. Many are driven by pragmatism as they design their services around attracting the lost. Similarly, many churches are driven by an aesthetic that seeks to entertain those sitting in the pews. And then there are those who are falling prey to various forms of mysticism, chasing after emotional highs and quote-unquote worship experiences. The sad reality is that many of our churches believe the right things on paper, but what we practice tells a different story, revealing the continued need for a reformation of worship, worship that is regulated by the Word of God and shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why G3 Ministries is compelled to launch biblical worship workshops. And we've got the first of these coming up February 8th and 9th at Praise Mill Baptist Church, two days leading up to the regional conference here in Douglasville, Georgia. My good friends Laramie Minga and Matt Sykes will be participating in some of the teaching. Josh Bice and Owen Strand will be preaching. I'd encourage you to register quickly. Our early bird registration won't last long for these biblical worship workshops coming up February 8th and 9th. You can go to g3min.org and find more information and register for these workshops. When we think about the culture that we live in today, many factors have influenced where we are. For many years in Western civilization, Christianity influenced all of culture, and many factors gradually led to the end of that impact in the West. Several of these, ironically, came as a direct result of the dominance of Christianity. For example, the 15th century Renaissance, which emphasized classical learning rooted in the original sources, flourished among Christian theologians, but also it began to dismantle the control of the church. The quick impact of the Reformation also could have only happened because Christianity was such a central part of society. Most people already believed in the reality of God and the Bible as his divine revelation. And once the scriptures were translated into the language of the people, these underlying assumptions provided the fertile ground for Protestant theologians to argue their reforms. In a similar way, even advancements in science in the 16th and 17th centuries beginning with the Copernican Revolution in 1543 and culminating with Isaac Newton's discoveries, rose out of Christian curiosity to truly know God and what he has made. Each of these movements, the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Scientific Revolution, were, for the most part, thoroughly Christian at their core, yet they each also contributed to the weakening of Christianity's influence. Think about this, for example. The 17th century scientific revolution, which began as a thoroughly Christian movement, inevitably led 
to skepticism toward anything that could not be proven through human reason. Rene Descartes' most famous statement, I think, therefore I am, centered the foundation for knowledge in self rather than divine revelation, beginning a shift in what constitutes the final authority for understanding the world from faith in God's divine revelation to human reason. Whereas Augustine had said, believe so that you may understand, Descartes made understanding primary. This evolution of reason and science over faith, known as the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason, was, in the words of Abraham Kuyper, the expulsion of God from practical and theoretical life, what Rod Dreher describes as the decisive break with the Christian legacy of the West. The position that the church had enjoyed as the dominant influence over all of culture in the West was over. Reason was now in control, and a purely secular culture began to emerge for the first time in Western civilization, leading to German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche later to proclaim in 1882, God is dead. What this created was for the first time an exclusively secular worldview, a complete redefinition of both reason and faith led to fundamental changes in underlying assumptions in the culture, which eventually also impacted Christian theology and Christian worship. This fundamental shift in worldview put Christians in an awkward position because many of their beliefs were not able to be proven through empirical evidence, through reason alone. And that, of course, led many to reject God altogether. People in the 18th century didn't throw away any conception of God immediately, of course. Changes in philosophy and culture as quickly as they did occur during this period didn't happen overnight. Yet, a new theology emerged as a result of a change in worldview. This theology first affirmed the existence of a creator God, but one who had not revealed himself to humanity nor has any contact with them. Combination of a worldview that believed only in what could be proven through empirical science with this new theology created what we might call the religion of deism, a drastically secularized portrait of the relationship between God and man. Most of the founding fathers of America were deists. But this also changed their view of scripture working on the basis of naturalist assumptions, theologians began to what they called demythologize scripture, extracting the biblical narrative from the historical event. They began to argue that, for instance, a group of Hebrew editors composed the Pentateuch after the return from exile out of a desire to unify the struggling nation around a common religious heritage. Most of what's in the Old Testament, they argued, was fabricated from myths and legends. Then later, while the early Enlightenment philosophers were deists, affirming the existence but impersonality of God, by the 19th century, the dominant worldview shifted to a pure materialism. The rational basis for explaining the world in purely natural terms without the need to acknowledge a creator God was Charles Darwin's The Origin of the Species. 
Man was now understood to be a machine, his actions the product of chemical reactions with no inherent morality or value at all. This naturalist evolutionary explanation also spread to other philosophical disciplines, such as anthropology and its insistence upon the value-free nature of culture. For example, the father of British anthropology, Edward Tyler, applied Darwin's evolutionary theories to the way people behave in different societies, formulating a conception of the idea of culture that continues to this day. Even religion in this theory is merely one aspect of culture that has simply evolved in human societies. What these developments have created is essentially a new religion, a secular religion dominated by the central doctrine of pluralism, which is the idea that any theological or religious claim that insists that it is intrinsically superior is necessarily wrong. No religion has the right to say that it is true or that others are false. This is the doctrine of pluralism. And then a final essential component of the secular religion of the West is pragmatism, the first distinctly American school of philosophy, which was first formulated by men like John Dewey, William James, and John Sanders Peirce. Peirce succinctly articulated the core of pragmatism when he said, quote, Consider the practical effects of the objects of your conception. Then your conception of those effects is the whole of your conception of the object. In other words, the end justifies the means. These philosophers wanted to bring the success of scientific problem solving to other realms of life. And so what answers practical needs becomes the most important thing. Since only the natural world exists in this thinking, and therefore there are no transcendent universal moral principles, the ends justify the means in this new secular religion. The Industrial Revolution, often said to have begun with the development of steam power in the early 1800s, also had significant impact on culture and consequently on the church, its theology, and its worship. As technological advancements made communication and travel easier, local folk cultures began to lose their distinctiveness, and a new mass culture emerged. This newly formed pop culture had at its core mass appeal and commercial interests. New or contemporary became axiomatic values since with technology, new is usually better. This belief that new is always better is often an unconscious assumption. In other words, a significant change in culture has created a shift in worldview. Another important philosophical shift that occurred as a result of the Enlightenment and had significant impact on broader culture was the emergence of the naturalist category of, quote-unquote, emotion. When theologians and philosophers prior to the Age of Reason spoke about human sensibilities, they used nuanced categories like affections of the soul, such as love, joy, and peace, and appetites or passions of the body, like hunger, sexual desire, and anger. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul used these categories as well. 
urging Christians, for example, in Colossians 3, to put on the chest the affections of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and describing in Philippians 3 enemies of Christ as those whose God is their belly, their appetites. This way of understanding human sensibilities dominated Christian thought and philosophy from the early church all the way through the Reformation. The affections were the core of spirituality and were to be nurtured, developed, and encouraged. The appetites, while not evil in contrast to Gnosticism, must be kept under control lest they overpower the intellect. Theologians believe that the Bible taught a holistic dualism where immaterial and material combined to form humanity. And so while the body and the spirit were both good and constantly interact and influence one another, and physical expression is part of the way God created his people, biblical spirituality and worship should aim at cultivating both the intellect and the affections, as well as calming the passions. With music and worship, for example, Second century theologian Clement of Alexandria argued, we must abominate extravagant music which enervates men's souls and leads to changefulness, now mournful, then licentious and voluptuous, then frenzied and frantic. Rather, the church's hymnody, he said, should employ temperate harmonies. Likewise, Augustine insisted later that while the affections were at the core of Christian religion, the passions must be controlled by reason. And Thomas Aquinas later likewise maintained a distinction between the soul's affections and the body's passions. The reformers too, like Calvin, agreed, considering worship to consist centrally of pious affections while yielding entirely to fleshly desires was sin. In contrast to this pre-modern way of thinking, the purely naturalist environment of the Enlightenment created a new psychological category that philosophers called emotion, non-cognitive, purely physical, involuntary feelings. This new psychological philosophy of emotion, combined with increasing secularism, affected the culture broadly and, and the church specifically, including their new view of art and music. Pre-modern thought, which understood music to be directly connected to the heart and understanding that distinction between the affections and the passions, consequently understood a distinction between kinds of music. Some music inherently targets the spirit, the mind, the affections, and the will, while other music is designed simply to artificially create a physical experience of the senses. In the wake of the Enlightenment, Music that targeted the passions rose to dominance. The goal of music in the broader culture became to excite human passions rather than to calm them. And this gradually impacted the music of Christian worship as well. This is not to say that theologians prior to the Enlightenment saw no connection between worship music and the heart. They certainly did. But losing the older distinctions between the affections and the appetites, lumping both together in a nebulous category of emotion or feeling, led to a reality in which music's biblical and theological rootedness was lost. 
So then savvy entrepreneurs noticed this shift in worldview and began to take advantage of newly invented means of mass communication. They saw an opportunity to cash in. In order to appeal to the largest number of consumers, pop culture began to produce art that created immediate results, valuing novelty above all else. All of these philosophical and cultural changes then created new conditions that left Christians in a bit of a dilemma. What are we to do with these changes in culture? An initial response to the rise of secularism by Christians was to accept a separation of reason and faith and attempt to affirm both. But the problem is that they began to adopt a rationalist redefinition of reason, which then ended up redefining faith as something ultimately emotional rather than rational. Instead of refuting these new philosophical developments by proving that they are self-refuting, Many professing Christians actually accepted the premise that this new way of thinking was, quote-unquote, intellectual, and they sought refuge by denying the need for the intellect. And then, as a result of these philosophical changes and the growth of secular society, emotion entered the void left by a growing absence of religion, and in many cases, the liturgies and worship and music of the church devolved into a mere aestheticism, worship of beauty and tradition for the feelings they create, feelings assumed to be at the very core of religiosity. Religion eventually became defined as individual and private expression of emotion divorced from doctrine, leading to worship that shunned the intellect and attempted to speak simply and directly to the worshiper's emotions. By the mid-19th century, Western society had been forever changed. As the secular culture moved further and further away from the traditional beliefs and practices of Christendom, Protestant churches were faced with a dilemma. Continue to cultivate their historic, theological, and worship traditions, and risk becoming increasingly alien compared with the rest of culture, or reject the church's traditions and adapt to the culture in order to remain influential and relevant. Christianity's cultural influence was increasingly diminished, and as the surrounding culture plunged into popularized secularism, the church's traditional forms became foreign. Well, churches responded in one of two ways. First, the traditionally liturgical churches attempted to revive Christianity through a renewal of their historic liturgies, but heavily influenced on a sort of aestheticism, which viewed beauty for its own sake, and historicism, which valued tradition simply out of a belief that old is better. This response characterizes what are sometimes called mainline denominations, those with more loyalty to historic traditions and liturgies than to true biblical theology. Second, the newly emerging evangelical churches reacted against rationalism, initiating attempts at revival through methods that would eventually lead them to break from the traditions of the church that they inherited in the name of effectiveness, and relevance. As churches today think about our theology, our worship, 
and our relationship with the culture around us, it is essentially important that we understand these philosophical and cultural developments and intentionally strive to make sure that what we believe, how we worship, and how we live is governed by scripture and not by the increasing secularism around us. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give it a five-star rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at g3min.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.